Open your Bibles, if you would, Ephesians uh, chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5. We're continuing in our study of this letter for our visitors this morning. We've been in Ephesians for several weeks now, um, study of this letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus, church on the western coast of what we would now call Turkey, Asia Minor, a church established by an unknown missionary, unknown evangelist. We don't know who started the church, lots of speculation, but we do know that Paul came there, found it, uh, found it in need of, of teaching and ministry, spent time there. It's all laid out in Acts 19, and now we have him writing back to that church with encouragement and instruction. And as we've been now several weeks, uh, gone through the first four chapters, we've noticed a couple of major themes in the book or major points uh, that Paul has made. The first, and we spent several weeks on this, Paul wanting the Ephesian believers to know who they were in Christ, their position, their status in Christ. They, were, they are adopted children of God. They are citizens of his kingdom. Right? They're members of his household. Paul's very clear to make that out. We took a lot of time talking about that because we need to get that fixed in our minds, who we are. We are his adopted children. We are citizens of his kingdom. We are members of his household, all because of the accomplished work of our Savior. Got to have that fixed in our mind. And then the second thing, uh, once he gets that fixed in their mind, is to move to how they should conduct themselves, how the Ephesian believers should act, how they should walk. And we talked about what a huge word that was. The, the whole, it encompassed the whole of their lives, how the whole of their lives should reflect their status, who they were. They should be acting like adopted children, children of God. They should be acting like citizens of the kingdom. They should be acting like members of his household as an expression of who they are. And that's the point that Paul has really been moving us to. Um, we start to shift then, we did this in the third and fourth chapter, uh, away from that issue of identity to the issue of behavior. What does it look like to be his adopted child? What does it look like to be a, a citizen of his kingdom, a member of his household? And we talked there about the importance of truth. A couple weeks back, we talked about how important truth was. And that is the truth that's found in the person of Christ, the truth, right? And how that is expressed in our individuality and in our community, we talked about the importance of that, about everything we are being an expression of who he is. We've got to have that fixed really solidly in our mind. And this morning we're going to continue, and we're going to, but we're going to add a new, uh, if I could use the word dimension to it. Some of us are old enough to remember when, can you, I see the smiles, you know exactly where I'm going, yeah. Some of us are old enough to remember when Kenny Rogers sang with a group called the Fifth Dimension, right? Weren't they the ones that sang that song, This is the Age of Aquarius? Were they the ones that sang it? I had no, they weren't the ones, it was somebody else. I don't know why I connect those, because I never did understand either one of them, All right? But that word dimension is a big word. It means entering into a whole new phase. Well, well, Paul is doing that. None of that really had any bearing at all on what I'm going to say next. So if it didn't resonate, you're fine. Um, Paul's bringing us into a whole new, he's bringing the Ephesian church into a whole new area, a whole new arena, whole new dimension in this next passage. And so um, 
Let's start with chapter 5, verse 4, and we'll read uh, through verse 14 and see if you can pick up this totally new thing that Paul is talking about. He said, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But do not let immorality or any impurity or greed even be named among you as is proper among saints. There must be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather the giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who's an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, now you're light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what's pleasing to the Lord. And do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it's disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they're exposed by light. For everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. And ask that as we look to it this morning, we would have clarity of thought, Lord. And hearts inclined to respond. In Jesus' name, amen. Therefore, he wrote, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. Just as Christ also loved you, gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Two huge changes take place in that very first and second verse. Number one, he says, be imitators of God. And two, walk in love. Up until this point, up until the point, the instruction has been, all under that umbrella, we saw it a couple chapters back, all under that umbrella of walking in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. That set the tone moving forward. Understand what we've been called to, what our identity is. We have those ideas fixed. We need to walk in a manner worthy of that. Adopted children, citizens of his kingdom, members of his household. But now he switches. You might say he ups the ante, right? He raises the bar. Now he says, be imitators of God. Your standard is no longer that of a child or a citizen or a member of the household. Now the standard he's aiming for is God himself. You should be imitators of God, and that means to walk in love. And those are the issues we're talking about this morning. Now this standard isn't our calling anymore. Our standard is his very being. And that is so absolutely essential for us to understand as we go farther in the letter. Just as walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, that was the umbrella under which the last two chapters move forward. This is the umbrella under which the next chapters move forward, and we have to have that in mind. We're called to be imitators of God. And the reason that is so critical, that we absolutely have to have that concept fixed in our mind before we go forward, is because... There's, and Paul didn't do this. I'm not, I'm not blaming Paul for this. But there's a trap. It's a product of our bringing our Western mind to the text. There's a trap for us that we really have to avoid. Okay? It's because Paul is starting to talk about what Christians do and don't do, how Christians act and shouldn't act. 
And it's going to be one of them lists, you know, a do and a don't do list, right? In our Western mind, our Western Christianity, the minute we see something like that, we immediately, our inclination is to create a law, a set of laws. This is what Christians do. This is what Christians don't do. And if we do this and don't do this, we'll be good Christians and God will be happy. But if we don't do that or we do do this, then we'll be bad Christians. God will be unhappy. And we start dealing with God or trying to deal with God in a manner he never intended. It is so ingrained in our Western Christian thinking to just go right to that place. And I can demonstrate it for you this morning, all right? And again, I'm not throwing rocks at anybody or blaming anybody. We're all like, you know, products of our raisin, right? Okay? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a statement, and I'm going to leave a last word off. And I want, you don't have to do it out loud. Just in your mind, finish the statement, okay? In fact, it may be even better if you try to not finish the statement. You won't be able to help yourself, right? It'll come so automatically, all right? Here it is, right? Just finish the statement or try not to, right? Moses came down from Mount Sinai. And when he came down from Mount Sinai, he had in his hands two stone tablets. And on those stone tablets were written the ten... See, somebody, you had to say it. Somebody said it. It's so much, it's so in our being, we can't not say it. The Ten Commandments. And we know it's the Ten Commandments because we've always been taught it was the Ten Commandments. And Cecil B. DeMille told us it was the Ten Commandments. Charlton Heston told us it was the Ten Commandments. And he can't be wrong. It's ingrained in our being that we have the Ten Commandments. And it's all over the place. It's on buildings, it's, it's everywhere. Did you know that the phrase, the Ten Commandments, is never found in Scripture? Ever. Never. In fact, you will not find the phrase, the Ten Commandments, in, or, or any other linguistic equivalent to that. You will not find the phrase, the Ten Commandments, until the 16th century. The Geneva Bible, published in 1557, is the first Bible to make use of the phrase, the Ten Commandments. Well, if they weren't the Ten Commandments, what were they? Okay, well, I'm not even going to try to get into the Hebrew word, but I do know that when the Hebrew scholars, I mean, I've read the word, and the word that is used to describe them is the word, word, or saying. And when the Hebrew scholars translated into Greek in the Septuagint, they used the word, word. They called it the Decalogue. Now, some of you may have heard that phrase, the Decalogue. It means ten words. All right? Now, what I, am, am I suggesting that we don't pay attention to the ten words or that we just take them as ten suggestions or really good? No, I'm not saying that at all. I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying is this. They were not intended to be understood as a statement of law. And the, the, another, another proof of that is when Jesus in Matthew's gospel was asked, what's the greatest commandment, law? Did he refer to the Ten Commandments? No. That's Exodus. He quoted from Deuteronomy. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might and your neighbor as yourself, and all the law rests on this commandment. He did not refer to the ten words. What are they then? They're a principle of living by which, if you keep them, life goes really well. And if you don't, 
life goes really badly. It is completely universal. The Old Testament law was never intended to be, to be exercised by all people everywhere. It was a law for the people of God, the Jewish people, the Hebrew nation, to be acted out in obedience to his covenant. The ten, I almost did it. The ten words are a universal set of principles for living. Heed them, life will go well. Don't heed them, life doesn't go well. Life goes very badly in a hurry, and that's true individually, and it's true corporately. So it's not that the ten words were not absolutely essential to live otherwise is disastrous, but they weren't intended as a law. And either are these things that Paul tells the New Testament church to do. And, and see, here's the point. If it's a law, it's intended for both members of the household and people outside the household. If it's a law, it's intended for both citizens of the kingdom and people that aren't citizens of the kingdom. If you don't believe that, go to a foreign country and break the law. Ask Pastor Joyce. She's the one with two tickets. Or you could ask me. I'm the one that spent the night in jail. Okay? Whether you intend it or not, if you live in there, you keep the law, right? So law is intended for both people on the outside, people on the inside, as long as you're under within the, you know, the parameters of the law. But these teachings in the Ephesian letter, they really don't have a lot of relevance to the non-believer. They only have relevance to the believer. So let's look at what Paul is talking about in these issues as we move forward, right? You see, what we're trying to describe is the Christian walk, not as a matter of laws, but as a manifestation of the character of Christ. And that's where Paul's been going the whole way in this letter, to bring the Ephesian believers to live in such a way that their lives, their walk, that whole encompassing expression of life, is a manifestation of the character of Christ. So that in what we do, in the everyday based in an understanding of who our Savior is, that our actions would be expressions of who Jesus is and who we are in Christ. That is to make him manifest. And notice how he ends this second verse, right? He talks about Jesus offering himself as a sacrifice to God, a fragrant aroma. What did the aroma of the sacrifice do? It gave a sensory evidence that the sacrifice had been made. All you had to do was walk by the temple and you knew the sacrifices were going on because you could smell them. It's evidence, manifestation of what's happening inside. So with that in mind, not that we're looking for things to do because doing them makes us a good Christian and makes God happy with us for that reason because he's already happy, he already loves us. But things we do because he has loved me and I want to respond in a way as to love him and I want to reflect his character in a dying world that he died and saved to redeem. That's the point. That I live in such a way that we all live in such a way to express his love for us, to respond in love to him and to reflect his character to a dying, decaying world that he died to redeem. First things. Okay, He says in verse 3, Do not let immorality or any impurity or greed even be named among you as is proper among saints. There should be no filthiness, no silly talk, no coarse jesting which are not fitting, but rather the giving of thanks. All of that stuff. 
immorality in our, in our sexual being, immorality in our talk, immorality in our business, immorality of any form, that which is contrary to the character of his being should find no place, no expression in our lives. We shouldn't even leave the suggestion that it might be there. No room for it. We need to be overly cautious in conducting ourselves in such a way that there's not even the slightest hint that we're engaged in that kind of behavior. You know, one of the, one of the, of the teachings of Scripture that we tend to take kind of lightly um, is the teaching about slander and gossip. Um, we all know that you're not supposed to gossip, right? But what do we mean by that? Well, we obviously mean that we don't go out and tell lies about people to make them look bad, right? That's, that's slander. That's gossip. Yeah, that's only a fraction of it, though. Years ago, I had to confront a, a believer. Don't, don't question the man's faith at all. But he was really, really slamming somebody. I said, you can't be doing that, man. That's gossip. And his response was, no, it's not. Everything I'm saying is true. That may be correct, but it's still gossip. Right? The Hebrew scholars... Uh, list four categories of, of gossip. And this has been so helpful to me in, in my, every, much my everyday. First of all, there's that thing you say, or somebody says, not you. There's that thing that somebody says which is false as in, and is intended to bring harm. We all know that's gossip, right? But then there's that thing which is true and intended to bring harm. According to the, according to the rabbis, that's still gossip. That's the second category. It's true, but it's intended to bring harm. How about the thing that is false, but you don't really know it's false, and you're actually saying it for their benefit. Okay? And no, that's all gossip. Okay. The fourth category, and this is where people look at me and go, are you really sure that's gossip? Is that which is true, and which you intend to be complimentary? Is that gossip? Yes, it is. You see, what ties all four of those things together? The other person's not there. The other person's not there. And here's where I came to understand how even that fourth one, right, can leave the stain, the hint, if you will, of immorality. I was talking to somebody about somebody I knew because they had asked a legitimate question about them. What kind of person are they? And I said something that in my mind was totally complimentary, right? That person then repeated it to that person in a group. I have no idea what their motive was. They quoted me word for word, but it didn't have the same effect. The way it was presented, whether deliberately or not, really left me looking bad. Like I had really spoken out of turn. And in fact, it even was presented in a way that left itself open to a variety of interpretations as to what I was suggesting. It was a disaster. But, and it started with me saying something that was true and was intended to be a compliment, but the person wasn't there. It is so easy. The one, the particular rabbi who wrote this, this, and I wish I gave his name, I can't. Uh, his, his policy was, if the person's not there, I don't talk about them, regardless. If they aren't there, zip, don't talk about them. That may be a little bit extreme, but you get the point. It is so easy, even well-intended, to say or do something that can leave a stain. Paul says, don't, don't do it, don't go that, don't go there, don't leave a state, right? Look down at verse 6. 
He says this in verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. The sons of disobedience. All right. Good example of our Western legalism. Disobedience is, is, not, is not the word, right? In fact, you really can't even say that in Greek. There, there's no vehicle in Greek for saying that, right? They don't have the word obey, right? That comes from a Latin root. The Latins, with their very strong fixture on authority, created a word that became our English word obey, right? What Paul says here is that comes upon the sons who will not listen. That's the word that's translated. In fact, most of the places in, in the New Testament, if you read the word obey, it's talking about listening, right? Those who refuse to listen. Those who have heard the truth but rejected the, Is he talking about non-believers here? Or is he talking about people that have heard the gospel, affirmed the truthfulness of it, and yet declined to follow it, refused to follow it? That's who he's talking about, right? Sons of disobedience. In fact, he says, don't even be partakers. Don't be partners. Don't even let yourself be identified on the side of that kind of behavior. Now, verse 8, Paul returns to the theme of light. He says, remember, you were formerly darkness. Now you're light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And then he says this. Verse 9 is so critical. For the fruit of light comes in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Our manifestation of the character of God should be, Paul's goal, is that it be as natural as fruit on a tree. Now, you plant an apple tree, you expect to find apples, very sophisticated, right? Apples, right? Now, you plant an apple tree, and you look out the next spring, and you see buds, and they grow into prunes. Do you say to yourself, look, I have an apple tree that grows prunes. No. You say, that lousy gardener sold me a prune tree. I may have thought it was an apple tree, but I know it's a prune tree because it's got prunes on it, right? The fruit is a demonstration of character, and that was what Paul is saying here. We're talking about the reformation of our character so that we're not complying with laws, we're rather expressing who we are, and that's a demonstration of the character of Christ. Right? Now, if you have a tree that produces apples and prunes, someone's been messing with it, it's schizophrenic, and you need to call the shrink. Some of us are like that. I'm not going any farther down that road. Okay. He says, as for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. See, it's not simply a matter of there's a law, I comply with it, and I'm a good little boy or girl, right? It's a matter of growth. It's a matter of growth and development. How many as parents remember, and I hope all of us who are parents of older children can say yes to this, remember that glorious moment where you said something to your child that wasn't a direct, do this. It was just like a suggestion, and they did it. Like, wow, they have figured out that I might be smart enough to know a little bit about life, and so they just listen. See, that's that relationship that the Father's looking for with us, that he doesn't have to lay out this black and white law, do this or, you know, whatever. But no, here's how you should live, and then we do it. We do it out of an understanding of who he is and who we are, right? Not law, but fruit. 
Then in verse 11 and 12, he says, to do not even participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but even expose them, for it's, grace, it's a disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done in secret. And then verses 13 and 14, kind of, I think, an almost like a cryptic turn. He said, all things become visible when they're exposed by the light. Now, that's straightforward, right? I know that some of you, like Pastor Joyce and I, love to go to Hawaii. We have been very fortunate to be blessed there. We've got family there. We've got good friends there. We've been treated really well the times that we've been there. But I can tell you that it doesn't, and because of the generosity of our family and friends, we've been able to stay in some really nice places. And I can tell you right now, it doesn't matter if you're in a bungalow on the beach or the finest hotel in the island, when you walk into a dark room and flip on the light, what happens? the roaches go everywhere, right? You can be in the nicest place in the island that they got roaches, okay? They're everywhere. So you walk in the room and flip on the light and boom, they go everywhere, right? Or as my brother George would say, the big ones come by. They fly really slow, those big guys, yeah. They were there already. They're everywhere in the islands, right? Those disgusting creatures. They're everywhere. But it's when you flip on the light that they suddenly become relevant, right? They suddenly, and if you're not ready for them, it really will freak you out. Bad, it's bad. But the point is this, it's the light that reveals them. So I can handle that part, it's straightforward. Everything becomes visible when exposed by the light, okay? But what about the next part? For everything that becomes visible is light. That paints the cockroach in a very favorable, you know, way, which I don't agree with, right? Now, some people, some translators have tried to turn that around and say, everything which reveals darkness is light. The grammar won't allow that. It literally is. Everything that becomes visible is light. So in a very real way, when I turn the light on, and there the gross, disgusting thing is scurrying for the corner, is that light? Well, it's truth, isn't it? It really is there, isn't it? Its presence is light. Its presence is truth. It remains a disgusting little creature, but its presence is truth. It really is there. Another way to look at this, and, and I believe where, where Paul is going with this, is even the manifestation of our sins. The sins themselves become part of the light. Was Paul ever reluctant to talk about his failures, about his sins? No. He openly talked about his persecution of the church. He openly talked about his weaknesses. He talked about his failures. He told the Corinthian church, I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling, right? I came to you a weak person. He has no problem owning that. So owning even the weaknesses of our character is all part of walking in the light, right? Verse 14, Paul wraps up this section this way. He says, Awake sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Awake sleeper, rise from the dead, Christ will shine on you. The question is, is he talking about unbelievers there or believers? Awake sleeper, rise from the dead, Christ will shine on you. Well, he's quoting from the book of Isaiah, and in Isaiah, the prophet is speaking very directly about the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel has gone to sleep. And God, through the prophet, is telling the nation to awaken. This would strongly suggest that Paul's writing to believers. Believers who are asleep when they should be awake. Believers who have become comfortable in darkness. Who have become comfortable with the idea that I'll do my best to keep these laws, but beyond that I can't do anything. No, they have not caught on to the idea that their very lives 
should be a manifestation of his character. And so they have, in fact, fallen asleep, comfortable in the darkness. What a tragic state for a follower of Christ, right? And I think the application to us is really clear, right? First, again, we have to understand who we are in Christ. We can't go anywhere without that. We are saved by the precious blood of the Lamb. We are redeemed at such a cost. We are adopted as his children, brought into his household. Recognize, then, that the whole of my life, in every way, has got to be a manifestation of his character. That's the goal for my life in this this world, to grow in the manifestation of his character, right? I love that scene in Acts. It's kind of of a goal. It's a goal for me, where in Acts chapter 4, where the disciples are brought into the Sanhedrin, And the Sanhedrin observed that they are unlearned men. That was about the best way they could put it because they still looked like and probably smelled like Galilean fishermen. They didn't look any different. Nothing outwardly different. But it says the Sanhedrin recognized they had been with Jesus. Yeah. That's what I want. I want people to recognize, even at my worst, that's a tall order. That's a tall order. I want people to recognize it. Even when I'm not doing well, people still can say, yeah, this guy hangs out with Jesus, right? That only happens, that only happens when we deliberately allow the light of God's truth in. That only happens when we cultivate and develop the fruit of Christ's character in our life. You know, I can't make the fruit trees I planted this year produce fruit. I can't make that happen when God can do that. But I can water them, and I can fertilize them. I can keep the moose away. I can do the things that cultivate it. Same with us. We can't make his character be formed in us. That's way above us. But we can do the things through time in his word, time in prayer, time in the, in the presence of other believers to be encouraged, to be instructed, to be called to task if necessary. Those are the things that cultivate his character so that the truth that is in him permeates every part of our lives, and that does something. As his truth, the truth of his character, begins to permeate our lives, and it's a process, right? We become something that the world desperately needs. And I'll finish with this. We become authentic. Authentic. We hear a lot in this world about the church being relevant. There's so much. It's being written in the Christian literature. It's being said by the world. The question, is the church relevant any longer? And we have, I have people saying, well, you know, this and this should happen if your church is going to be relevant, right? I love it especially when unbelievers who make no profession of faith say to me, you know, pastor, if your church is going to be relevant, you should do this, this, and this. There are so many falsehoods in that that you can't even count them, right? Frankly, I'm not even sure what it means to be relevant, right? You look at when Jesus encountered the woman at the well, was he worried about relevance? No. He was worried about presenting him Jesus to her. He, he wanted her to see who he was. That's authenticity. When we offer the world authentic Jesus, I think we become relevant. We become what the world needs. Father, I thank you for your word, Lord. And Father, as, I, as I've just been going over this week, it is such an incredibly tall order. Father, as I read the first verse and it says, be imitators of God, I'm thinking, that's not me. Nope, nope. And yet, Lord, I do know that in the sacrifice of your son, you not only saved me and and all of us, Lord, 
you not only saved us, but you brought us out of the grave with him. That's what baptism's all about. We come out of the grave with him. Father, you filled us with your spirit, so you're resident within us, Lord. Your character is there. And so, Father, we know that, that, that you are continually at work doing that very thing, which we find so impossible, the manifestation of your character through us, Lord. So, Father, we want to be careful always to do everything we can, always to walk in such a way that we leave, we leave room and opportunity for Jesus to just you be Jesus in us, Lord. Father, we're going to be careful not out of some compliance of laws and rules and regulations in the hope that makes us better. No, Father, we're going to be careful not to engage in the kind of behavior that detracts, Lord, from your character in us. Not from the kind of thing that would bring discredit or dishonor, Father, to your name. But rather, we will deliberately, Lord, seek every day to live our lives in such a way that the beauty, the love that is in you, your character is manifested through us. Father, we cannot do that on our own. That you've given us the resources, Father, to facilitate what you would do. Help us to take full advantage of them. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord this morning.